If you take your Bibles and turn with me to, to where are we at? We're in Numbers, I believe, tonight, chapter 13. We're continuing in our series, Lord, Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late. And if you're still here in this series this far, as I said last week, I'm proud of it. That means you're serious about having a change in your attitude. You know that through this series, our, our thesis has been that an attitude is a pattern of thinking that's formed over a long period of time. And you can't change your attitude overnight. You can change course, you can change directions on that attitude overnight, but it takes time for God to displace that. And So we've been looking at wilderness attitudes that God wants to take from us, and He wants to displace them with promised land attitudes. Tonight, I want to warn you, we're only going to be able to get through half of this. But I believe God wants us to take our time and really walk through this attitude of doubting. I'm excited to share tonight. The reason is because we're really now getting to the heart of the matter. The first attitudes were really important. Complaining and coveting and criticizing. But now we're getting to the real heart of the matter of wilderness attitudes. Wilderness attitude number four is that attitude of doubting. Hebrews 11.6, don't turn there, but just listen to this, tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, now this is one of those things I said, be careful, you can't just listen to this. I love it when, when God's word, it, it is not ambiguous. It's not, it's hard to please God without faith. Uh, smart people can, but not so smart people can't please God without faith. It says what? It is impossible to please God without faith. I mean, that, that's, that's stuff you can, you can take to the bank. I got all dressed up tonight, or kind of halfway dressed up. I put clothes on tonight to tell you, you can take this promise to the bank. You cannot please God without faith. And so if we take the inverse of that, we begin to see that, well, if I can't please God without having faith, then doubting is what? It's a perpetuating of not pleasing God. It's living over and over where I'm not pleasing God when I live with an attitude of doubting. To get rid of doubting, we're going to displace it with faith. And we're going to talk about that next Sunday night. But before we can do that, we've got to get really honest and deal with the doubt in our life. What do I know is true in God's word? But yet my life is not living for that. I'm not believing that with my life. What is it that I know of God to be true, but I'm not really putting all my weight on? Now, the temptation tonight is to kind of sit back and just kind of listen and go, yep, that's a good shot in the arm. I love Sunday nights. I love gathering with the family. I love watching Pastor Brady get his old rant going and get excited about something. I'm not sure what drives him crazy, but it's kind of fun to watch. It's, It's a good thing. But hey, we can't just listen to this because God is telling us we cannot please him And live with an attitude of doubt. It's pretty straightforward. If this is feeling offensive to you, uh, I'm halfway sorry, but I love you enough that we have to walk through this. Don't argue with me. I mean, you can try. I'll listen. I'll just smile at you. But you can argue with God. He says it's impossible to please me without faith. And in in inverse is when I'm living in doubt, I'm not pleasing God. Write this in. Doubt is a lack of confidence or assurance that God will keep his promise. Now, you've noticed that each week we we try to define these terms of these attitudes that lead us in the wilderness. Uh, I'm learning more and more that just because you say a word or a term or a phrase, it doesn't mean that everybody else in your audience understands the same thing. And so when we're saying doubting, 
There's a lot of things that could come into your mind. A lot of things that could, you may think would be doubting. But here's what we're talking about. It's a lack of confidence or assurance that God will keep his promise. You lack confidence that God will do what he said. Listen to Philippians 4, 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that you can take to the bank. You can live that out. You need to hang on to that and say, God will meet my needs according to his riches of glory. We don't have to live a life of doubt, but a lot of us live a life of doubt. Listen to Isaiah fifty-four seventeen. It's written on your outline. You can circle that. Go back and read it on your own later this week. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Some have memorized it this way. No weapon formed against you will prosper. There's nothing that comes against you that will be greater than the one who is in you. God has given you a promise. We need to have faith and live in that. But if we're honest, when we look at our life, we doubt Well, I'm not so confident that God's going to make good on that promise for me. It it sounds good, and I believe God, you know, God of all creation, you know, uh, all the wonders of of all the galaxies and all this. I can't get the lyric. That's why I don't sing the song. I don't lead it. I just kind of follow it. We sing about this God who's out there in in all of of creation, but, but right there against my foe, against my challenge, against the work environment I have to go to tomorrow morning. God wants to meet me there. He's going to help me prosper there. What? I don't know if I see that. You say, Brady, that's not working out for me like that in my life. Well, the reason could possibly be that doubt is taking hold of your attitude. You're not living a life of faith. You're living a life of doubt. Listen to Psalm 84:11. For the Lord... God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. God wants to bring blessing in your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you're living for God, you'll never, ever, ever have a problem. I'm not saying if you trust in God, your bank account will be overflowing with zeros. Well, sometimes my overflows with zeros, but like numbers and then zeros after it. I'm not saying that's going to happen every time, but I'm promising you this because God's words promise this. What you really need in life, he will give to you sometimes. He will give to you on like the even days of the month. Every single time he will meet your needs. Now we, we read about this, we talk about it, some of us even teach this God help us, but we're not sure that we really embrace it and live a life of faith. We live a life of doubt. I told you we're going to be in Numbers 13, so uh, turn there, and before we get into that, jot this down. God places regular tests of faith in front of his children. Now, it may be, sound like semantics to you or splitting hairs, but it's important for us to note this. God never tempts you. Satan will tempt you. God doesn't tempt you, but God will allow tests to come before you. Satan wants to tempt you to do sin, to do wrong, to do evil. God gives you a crossroads where you choose, am I going to lean on him or not? He allows all kinds of circumstances and situations to come our way. God doesn't cause all things to happen, but Scripture tells us he will work all things together for the good of those who love him. And God will bring tests to his children on a regular basis. The children of Israel were at the end of their journey and had 
been led from Egypt to the promised land. That's what we're picking up. They were ready and on the edge of moving into that promised land, but the thing that was promised was not vacant. And our first week we looked at this promised land and, and God was leading them there, but somebody was living there. And if you're going to move into a house and someone's living in that house, something has to happen before you can move in. They have to be moved out. And, and so the question is, will they trust God and conquer their enemy or will they doubt and end up in despair? Now we know a little bit of what happens in the story, but let's look about how the doubt takes hold in their life. Deuteronomy is also talking about the same event. Deuteronomy 1, 20 and 21 is telling us that this plan A that God had for them. Plan A was he would take them from Egypt and like a steamroller, they would just charge right into the promised land. They didn't have to go hang around Mount Sinai a long time. They didn't have to wander in the wilderness. God wanted to lead them straight through. But because of their wilderness attitudes of complaining and and coveting and, and all this stuff happening and doubting, they missed God's plan A. But plan B, here's what God says. In Deuteronomy 1, 20 and 21. We'll get to Numbers 13. I know you're freaking out, but just listen. We'll get there. So maybe it takes a while to find it, so I'm giving you a heads up. Deuteronomy 1, 20 says this. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of, of it as the Lord our God, our ancestors, has told us. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Good summary terms for saying do not doubt. God laid out in front of them exactly what he wanted to do. He says, go ahead and take the land. Now, plan B, here's what God is working with them. They could have gone right there right away, but they were having some wilderness attitudes, and now they've wandered, and they've done some things, and now they're on the edge of the promised land. And here's where Numbers 13.1 picks up. Verse One of Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. Now, now this is important. If you write in your Bible, underline, I am giving. This is not a question of, God may want us to have the promised land, or, or this might be in the right zip code, but it may not be the exact neighborhood that God wants to give to us. This is, no, get some men, send them in to the land I am going to give to you. I am giving this to you. I told you this is for you. Now, some of us, when we deal with faith and doubt, we think, well, I don't want to presume on God, and I don't want to press my agenda on God. That's true. And and if we do that, that's a dangerous place. But, friends, a lot of us, our challenge is not that we we have so much faith that we're just kind of edging in on God a little bit. We live such weak powerless, doubt-saturated lives that even when God says, this is what I am giving to you, I'm telling you, the Lord of all creation is saying, I have this for you, I'm not so sure, God. That's kind of how they responded a little bit. Verse 3 of Numbers 13. So the Lord's, uh, excuse me, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Now God flat out said, I'm giving this to you. There's no wonder, there's no mystery. But they had a decision to make. And in fact, write this in, doubt is a choice. You choose to doubt. And, and same thing with faith. Faith is a choice as well. We, we choose these attitudes. It's a pattern of thinking formed over a long period of time. And either I'm choosing to, to doubt 
or I'm choosing to have faith in God. That's the choice that, that I make. Both of these are something we need to understand. We've been a part of for a long time, and God wants to displace that. But until we get honest, we won't be able to do it. Now, there's another danger. Sometimes we think that faith is just a little side dish to Christianity. And we kind of have the main course, and we have the, the big part of, uh, of Christianity, and then there's all these little side things that we need to have. I need to have a little bit of faith, I need to have a little bit of love, I need to have a little bit of joy, I need to have a little bit of this, and a little bit of that. And Faith is not a part of the Christian life. Faith is the whole thing. Faith is not a part of the Christian life, it's the whole thing. So if you're not leaning on God's promises, if you're not walking in faith and living out God's promises through His strength, I don't know what kind of life you're living, but it's not the Christian life that the Bible talks about. Faith is how we please God, Hebrews eleven six, And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's how we please God, but faith is how we come to God. It's not just how we please God, we come to Him. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Faith is how we please God. It's how we come to God. Faith is how we continue in God. Listen to Colossians 2.6. So then, just as you received Christ. How did we receive Christ? Ephesians 2.8 just told us we received Him by faith. So just as you came to Christ... By faith. So you should continue in Christ in that way. We continue in faith. It's the whole thing. It's what pleases God. It's how we come to God. It's how we continue in God. The entire Christian walk is about faith. Now, every time the disciples weren't getting it, every time Jesus had to correct them, what would he say? He'd say, oh, you of little faith. It was about faith. And Jesus was saying, you have to trust in me. You have to put your confidence in me. And doubt shatters all of that. Now, you can't tell just by looking at someone how much faith they have. Now, look at your neighbor and just see if you can tell. Just, I mean, they look good. They look sharp. Now, don't smell them. I didn't say sniff them. Some of you are sniffing each other. You may be able to tell if they had a shower or not if you sniff them. But just by looking at them, you can't tell if they, if they have faith. You just can't tell by looking at it. Now, you know, you can't, you can't always tell just by looking at, at, at stuff what, what's inside. Now, I mean, you can look at this pot and you're not exactly sure how much is in here or what is in here or if anything is in here. But, but just by looking at it, you can't see. But you know what? There, there's something that is a lot like us when we talking about faith, though it doesn't help a lot just to look at somebody. God allows tests. God allows things to come at us and, and bump us and, and let things slosh around and, and splash out. And so you can begin to see how much they have. I didn't even fake you out. I was so excited to fake you out. And you're like, there's nothing in there. You knew nothing was in there. You know, it, it's, it's stuff we say, well, I, I don't know what's in there or I'm confident nothing's in there. But when God allows tests to come, it bumps us. Hey, you know what? When you bump up against a Christian and there's a time of testing, what's inside will come out. Should have got you. It will come out. What's inside of you, what fills you, will come out in a time of testing. God wants us to be filled with faith. 
And so he allows tests and trials to come. And so when a Christian is bumped up against, you will see the faith come out. But if you are filled with doubt, that will come out as well. Sometimes we're lulled into thinking that if God really loves me, he'll not allow any kind of trouble to come my way. God wants to see what you're filled with. He wants to see the faith you have in him. Now, this is not something we muster up on our own. I'm going to get all this faith and I'm going to work it out real good. And God, look, aren't you proud of me? Faith is when I put my weight on him. So God's not asking because he doesn't have any clue. He's asking because he, we need to see what we are filled with. On the outside, we often look like we have it all together. But when we get bumped, when we get shoved, when we get squeezed, how often does faith in God come out? I think the enemy likes to play tricks with us at this point. And for some sensitive, well-meaning Christians, they find themselves on a Monday afternoon in an aggravating position at work. And the enemy gets on their shoulder and starts telling lies to them. And you know the scenario. That person at work, you know who they are. It's that one that they're an extra grace required person. We call them EGRs. God loves them and we're trying to love them. If you don't know of anybody like that, you may be that person, so we'll, we'll keep, keep talking. But, but you, you know what I'm talking about. It's that person and you go to work and Satan jumps on your shoulder and they say something to you and you're just, you're just aggravated. They're just, they're just silly. And you, you're just kind of frustrated. And Satan gets on your shoulder and says, if you're a good Christian like Pastor Brady was talking about, you wouldn't act this way. You like that? Isn't that good? <laughs> Where's Pastor Trey? I need to do puppets. You know what? Sometimes the spirit-filled believer, the believer who's filled with faith, and then the person who's filled with doubt or the unbeliever, when they're in the same situation, they respond the same way. But that spirit-filled believer who's filled with faith feels the conviction and they... They stop and say, God, I want, I want you to forgive me. I need to see them the way you see them. And Then you go and you talk to that person and say, you know what, I just asked God to forgive me and my attitude wasn't right. You know what? God wants to work through our weakness and we have faith in him, trust in him. He can do so far more shining through the cracks of your silly vessel of clay than you trying to be some polished vase that has no cracks in it at all. God allows testing to come so we can see what's inside of us. Now, when these circumstances of life come, write this in. Life will either shrink or stretch your faith. When things come bumping up against you, it will either shrink or it will stretch your faith. Say, so, well, that sounds good, but where do we find that in Scripture? Let's look at Numbers 13, 17 through 20. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev, and on into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or they're weak or few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled? Are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees or they're not trees? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit in the land. I like that added part. They've been eating manna. And then it says, it's, oh yeah, by the way, when you go see how good it is, bring some grapes back. 
I'm already discontent with what God's doing. Oh. They have a test before them. They're sending the spies in to go check out the land to see what it looks like. Now, God has already said, I'm going to give it to you. So what happens? What do you think will happen? Let's, let's look at Deuteronomy. Just listen to this. 128 through 31. This is a commentary on the same event recorded in another place. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. This is their response to the spies. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large and walls all the way up to the sky. We even saw giants there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. They're saying, hey, don't miss what God wants to do. When the circumstances come up, when life bumps up against you, either you will shrink back or you'll be stretched in your faith. We know how some of the spies responded. I want to pause right here because... I think one temptation is to allow this to be just cerebral. Just to think about circumstances as that philosophical thing. But if you even allow yourself for a fraction of a moment to begin to walk through what you're facing, I've prayed with some of you already about family relationships that are twisted and tangled. Some of you, if you're really honest, the giants that you're facing is a huge wall of a lack of purpose in your life. You're hungering to know why you exist. You're hungering to have meaning in your life. And you just feel as aimless as possible right now. And you say, God, I so desperately need to have direction from you, but you seem silent to me. God says, I want you to have faith. I'm going to give you what I've promised. But I don't see it yet, God. He says, I want you to have faith in me. Others of us, are, we're facing a financial mountain. And we think, God, I feel so guilty that I got myself in this mess, this jam. I don't even want to pray about it. God says, cast all your concerns on me. All your anxiety on me. Begin to move in obedience. Don't continue to do the same things that get you in that mess. But trust in God. Have faith in Him. Seek counsel. Some of us, we look at the circumstances of life and you can look back on things that have already happened. You don't have to look at what you're going through now. You've got a whole history of stuff that is bumping up against you. There's things that just don't seem fair. I was talking with a friend this week, and it was interesting how similar life's hurts and pains begin to match up. They shared about a loss in a family right after their wedding. I vividly remember just a few months before my wedding... At Christmas time, getting news that my father-in-law-to-be had been diagnosed with leukemia. Trying to love my fiance and trying to be there and be strong for her, I had no idea what I was doing. I just tried to love and I tried to listen and the diagnosis was three to five years and that's kind of a hard thing to wrap your arms around and your brain around. But as we began to journey through those next number of months, we were led up to our wedding time. And the circumstances were 
huge. Here my new fiance, my only fiance, was there before me. And as we began to pray together, of course we were praying for Randy's healing and praying for God to move. But there was just one thing in Carrie's heart that was so tough. As she prayed, I'll never forget her sitting there on that couch calling out to God saying, God, if you need to take him home, would you please just let him be in the pictures for my wedding? Came down to the wedding day and Randy was not doing well. He had to stay connected to a lot of machines and he was in the hospital. But unbeknownst to us, the hospital took it upon themselves to foot the bill to drive the two and a half hour drive by ambulance and bring two nurses with him so he could attend the wedding. I don't know what your experience is with hospitals and insurance companies. I haven't seen them offer to pay for anything on their own. But God began to work. As we were taking pictures and at the back of that sanctuary there at Olivet College Church, the doors opened and I was facing my wife and I saw her eyes begin to fill with tears and she began to run towards me and I thought, this is going to be a good day. (laughs) This is great. But pretty soon I could see that she was going to be running past me or running over me and And it was her dad who was coming down the aisle. Circumstances seemed to be going a little bit better now. I like this, God. You heard what I wanted to have happen. And Randy was able to come. And he was in the pictures. And he was in the wedding. And it was great. And we went off on our honeymoon. And the best that we knew that he was getting better. And it was all going to be fine. And about 15 minutes before we had planned to come home from our honeymoon, we got a phone call and said, you need to come back now. So we jumped in the car and we raced back and, We spent the next 24 hours, Randy's last 24 hours, singing him into heaven. At that moment, there's all kinds of circumstances pulling and screaming at you. It didn't feel fair. I remember laying in bed my first night in our new apartment with my brand new wife, who's at home with her mom and her bed, consoling her. The enemy screams out, this isn't right, this isn't fair, you shouldn't have to go through this. But God was faithful time and time again. I take the time to tell that story because you have the same real life stuff. Where life was bumping up against you. And now when we look back, there's nothing more joyous than to see how God knew what he was doing. He gave us gift after gift Promise after promise was answered, and we had a fabulous time being able to talk to Randy, sing him into heaven. Now, we thought it'd be three to five years, and it was just a few short months. Since then, we had no idea how God would tap into what that pain felt like to love on others who had similar pain. We sure don't understand what they're going through, but we know what pain feels like. See, in Deuteronomy, we're told again that There is opportunities to shrink back or to let God stretch our faith. Doubt sees the obstacles, write this in, and faith sees the opportunities. You see, you're going to have opportunities to be stretched in your faith or to shrink back in your faith. It's not because things go your way or they don't go your way. Friend, you will have every opportunity to live in doubt no matter who you are or where you live or what happens. No matter how much money you have, no matter what kind of connections you have or what lack thereof you have, you will have opportunities to live a life of doubt that will lead you in the wilderness. And the flip is true. You can live in faith if you trust God. Doubt sees the obstacles and faith sees opportunities. Now let's look at Numbers 13.25. We pick up. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. This is the same thing that Deuteronomy was just telling us. 
Verse 26 of chapter 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Now I want you to imagine with me. The people had been anticipating generation after generation of going to the promised land. And the evidence is before them. You've had manna, crackers, dry, crusty, nasty bread day after day after day. And now there's fruit. There's bananas. There's apples. There's oranges. There's grapes. And when I went to Israel, there was a whole bunch of other things I didn't know what to do with. And when I didn't know if I was supposed to peel it or eat it or bite into it, it was scary. But there was all kinds of wonderful food right before them. Evidence that this land was all that God had promised. They were coming up over the hill and, and, and they could see the spies coming back and they were getting ready to talk. And, and I could just hear all of these thousands, millions of people coming together ready to hear what the spies had to say. Eager, what did you find out? Look at Numbers thirteen twenty-seven. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land... To which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But. It's just like you promised. It's just like you said. Here's the evidence. God is getting ready to bless us. But. You've got to understand what we just saw. The people who live there, they are powerful. The cities are fortified. They're very large. We even saw descendants of Anak. They thought to be giants were there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jezubites, the Amorites, the Termites, all of them live there. Just want to see if you're still awake. All these ites were there, and it was all these people that just didn't seem good, and they were eating away at us. The Canaanites lived near the sea and all along the Jordan. See, their problem was not giants. Their problem was an attitude of doubt. Doubt sees the obstacles, but faith sees the opportunities. Now, as we read on, there's an attempt made to correct this attitude of doubt. Look at verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. (laughs) This is so good. He silenced. Why did he have to silence them? What were they doing? They were grumbling. We talked about this in week one. And it was so loud. Their doubt was so vocal. It was so loud. He had to say, be quiet. Settle down. Just just listen. Have you ever been in a situation where people were so full of doubt, if you were to say anything to come against it, you'd have to say, be quiet. That's what this was. Just listen. Here's what he says. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And right after his motivational sentence, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. They came in and just undid everything he said, just took the wind from his sails. Caleb is saying, this is a faith problem. The rest of them were saying, this is a giant problem. This is a city problem. This is a military problem. And he says, no, it's a faith problem. God has promised this to us. But no, you don't understand. There's all these things around us. You see, friends, this is how it always starts with us. People don't want to believe that faith is the issue. If someone is having a lack of belief, they don't want to believe that it's their faith that's an issue. 
in all of my ministry, I've never come across an obstacle person. You have the opportunity, people who are filled with faith, the people who are filled with doubt, all the obstacles. I've never had one obstacle person come and say, you know what, uh, I really think my problem is a lack of faith. An obstacle person doesn't say that. Someone who's doubting doesn't say, you know, I just think I, think I need God to stretch my faith. I need, I, think him to, I need him to grow my faith. No, they give you 15 reasons of what's really wrong. And they tell you all these things. Here's some obstacles that are often listed. Doubt that's disguised as other things. Now, this isn't in your outline. You can write this in the margin if you want to or just listen. Doubt is disguised as fear. I'm terrified that this won't happen. I'm terrified that they'll overtake me. I'm terrified that if I begin to trust God and live in faith and begin to believe that he has my best interests at heart, that, that I'm afraid that God's going to mess me up. He's going to embarrass me. He's going to cause me to, to fail. He's going to ask more than what I can give. And, and fear begin to take over. Doubt is also disguised as anger. Anger is me taking over for a hurt that is not settled. When I get angry, not a righteous anger, but an unrighteous anger. When I'm angry, you've done me wrong and, and I'm going to deal with it. I don't have faith that God's going to bring justice. I don't have faith that God's going to be enough for me, even though someone says something about me. I get angry, and so we have fear and anger masquerade, and really it's doubt taking place. Withdraw. You know you're living in doubt when you begin to pull away. Some of you, this is the first manifestation of doubt in your life. You begin to separate yourself from the body of believers. You begin to separate yourself from that person who holds you accountable. You begin to separate yourself from your family members. And you just begin to turn inward. And it's not too long until the fourth you have bitterness. Doubt comes out when we're bitter. It's I've trusted God before and it didn't work out that way. And I'm still dealing with the hurt. And I, I can't believe that happened. And, and I just don't believe it will happen. Finally, fifth, sometimes it's, it's masked as... The facts. It's really doubt, but we don't say that. It's just it's just the facts. I've just I've got black on white. It's the facts. It's not that I don't want to trust God, but it's the facts. And sometimes we have people who just hit us with the facts. You know what? If I lived my life for God, only looking at the facts of what could fit on paper, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today. I wouldn't be anywhere where I, I would be close to where God has placed me. God works in spite of the facts sometimes. Now, now, I'm not calling for us to be irresponsible. There's some people who say, you know what, I just want to be responsible. And responsible is good, but there's a fine line when we say, I'm a facts person. I want to be responsible and a cynic. There's someone who just says, you know, I, I just don't see it working out. I've done the math. Jesus, as we talked about this morning, if you're in first service, he can do a lot with a little. And God doesn't need what you need to make it work. And so the facts that we deal with may be true in our own strength, but God has a different strength. If we believe that God keeps his promises, we can live in the promised land. I love what Howard Hendricks says about this topic. We are all faced by a series of great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. If you're dealing with doubt, I believe this is a thought that can minister to you. You're not alone. We are all faced by a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as an unsolvable problem before you. Charles Swindoll writes, Attitude is more important than my past. 
It's more important than my education or my bankroll, my success or my failures. Attitude is more important than my fame or my pain or what others say or think about me. Attitude is more important than my circumstances or my position. Attitude keeps me going or cripples my progress. Attitude fuels my fire or assaults my hope. When my attitude is right, there is no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. This is a man who has spent time in God's Word. This is a man who we could gain by learning from the wisdom he's found in God's Word. This is not just about a good self-help attitude, but a promised land living attitude. You say, well, Brady, it's hard for me sometimes. Doubt just overwhelms me. It just, it just comes over me. I don't want to doubt, but it's just, it's just upon me before I know it. Write this in. You're not alone, but this is important to know. When surrounded by doubters, doubting comes easily. You wonder why doubt just crashes over you like a wave. When you're surrounded by doubters, doubt comes easily. Here's the facts. Numbers 14, 1 and 2. That night, look in your Bible right there, look at it. That night, how many of the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud? All of them. Verse 2. How many of the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron? All of them. See a pattern? And the whole assembly said to them, If we only had died in Egypt or in this wilderness... That God is showing us that this wasn't just some snap judgment he made. This was a huge majority. All of them were doubting and he led them into the wilderness. But instead of talking about God's grace, instead of recalling the miracles, instead of focusing on the victory that God had brought, all of them cried out in doubt. It was a disease that crept among them and it spread like wildfire. I've heard that phrase, wildfire, and um, sometimes we say phrases like that that lose its meaning. Uh, wildfire, whenever I hear of that term, this image pops in my mind. It was a 4th of July, and I was setting off fireworks with my father. My father was a wonderful role model, except in the area of not playing with fire. He didn't do a very good job. And uh, he taught me an unhealthy... Uh, Adventure excitement of just taking risks and letting the fireworks be exciting. And so we were in this field that was not ours and we didn't have permission to be in. And we were lighting off bottle rockets. And we had the whole family watching and, and I was picking up the excitement. And in my uh, preteen years, I was watching the oohs and ahs of the family. And I saw my dad's eyes get bigger and I thought, hey, we're going to do some pretty crazy things. I could just see it in him. And so we put too many bottle rockets in one bottle rocket launcher and Sure enough, if you play with fire enough, these things happen, and it fell over, and they just shot all over the yard, and the family laughed, but what turned to not be so funny is this dry field began to catch on fire, and and one little fire began to move to another, and it began to get bigger and bigger, and we were no longer having fun. I watched panic come in my father's eyes, and we went over to the neighbor's house, and and he had a garden hose, and and we ran and stretched the garden hose as far as it go, and we tried to douse the the lawn, and by that point it was doing nothing, and the end of the story was that the whole yard burnt to a crisp, and it spread, and there was no stopping it, and we learned our lesson. No, we did it again next year. 
But when I hear wildfire, I think about that fire, and you've seen something like that. It just, it started with a little spark, and it never planned on having that happen. And in fact, we wanted it to go somewhere else, but it caught, and it spread, and it took over the whole thing and killed the entire lawn. Just like a disease, like a wildfire, the doubting of the people of Israel began to spread. It started with one person saying, I don't think we can do it. They're so big. And it told another spy, you're right, they're huge, and this is, this is, this is, immense and they came back and they told their family and it began to go from that family member to their extended family and then one family to another family before you know it the entire body was living in doubt friends doubt spreads we begin to see that when you live and you are among doubters doubting becomes easier why is doubting easier it's so much easier than faith here's why Because doubting is contagious. You'll catch it faster than the common cold. Doubt is passive. You don't have to do anything to doubt. You don't wake up and say, I'm going to doubt today. No, you just do nothing. You just hang out and you doubt. If you're going to have faith, you have to be active. But to doubt, you just, I just doubt. It's it's passive. It's contagious. It's passive. And doubt satisfies our tendency towards self-protection. See, sometimes we try to protect ourselves. We've been disappointed one too many times, and if I expect nothing, then I'm never disappointed. And so I, I satisfy my self-preservation by saying, I'm just going to believe nothing will happen, and that I'm never disappointed. That may sound good, but you have no victory in your life. When you step out on faith, that's when you're really counting on God. But when you live like a doubter, And you say, see, I knew that was going to happen. You may feel more safe, but you have no hope. When you're surrounded by doubters, it's easier to doubt. And so what we need are friends of faith. People that are around you that have confidence in God. I want to warn you that there's a lot of people who want to say things in your ear in church and out of church that are not going to be a friend of faith. They give you all kinds of advice of what you should do in a situation, and it's not based in God's Word, or it's not based in having faith in God. It's human wisdom, and it may have some value. But where is our faith? Where is our friends of faith? Your friends of doubt are plentiful. The people who are going to have doubt, they're all around you. But the people you can count on to be a friend and faith are few and far between. It's not too long of a journey. From doubt to despair. As we end this time, I'm going to ask Pastor Edgar to come up. Just come to the keyboard. You've heard financial planners and mentors say, get out of debt. It's going to kill you. Get out of debt. It's going to drown you. And there's wise words there. But church, we need to get out of doubt It's suffocating us. We need to get out of doubt because it doesn't please God. We've got to move into the areas of faith. And and this is not something we just flip a switch and I no longer doubt. I now have faith. And we're going to talk about how to let faith overcome the doubt in our life. But I just felt impressed in our last couple of moments. That maybe a good action step for us tonight is to say, you know what? I'm beginning to see that doubt can creep in. As I shared earlier, those who don't want to believe never, ever want to believe that their faith is a problem. It's kind of like, how do you know when you're deceived? You don't. You're deceived. 
So if faith is the issue and you don't really believe, then saying I'm going to have more faith and believe doesn't seem much sense. But God wants you to have friends of faith who will come alongside and not give words of their human wisdom. There's a place for that. But they'll come along and they'll champion and they'll say, you know what? I've read God's word and this is what it says. I've been there and this is how God has helped me. My heart breaks for you. I don't know what you feel like, but I, I know what I felt like when I went through pain. And God was more than enough for me. Tonight, in an awesome day of worship that we've had, some unusual, some maybe needs to be a little bit more usual. I believe there may be one or two or five or 50, I don't know, of people who would say, you know what, I'm tired of being suffocated with this temptation for doubt. I love God. I'm living for God. I believe in God, but I need some friends of faith to rally around me tonight. Now, you're not saying you know who those friends of faith are. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But in just a moment, I'm going to ask if if you want friends of faith to rally around you, I'm going to have you come forward and kneel here at this altar. I'm not going to have you talk into a microphone. I'm not going to make you get up and sing a song. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But all you are saying is, I need friends of faith to rally around me because I am not feeling the victory on my own. If that's you, you are so normal. God never wanted you to feel the victory on your own. He placed you in the context of community. If that's you, as Pastor Edgar sings this song, I want you to do the hard thing. I want you to stand up and step out and you come down and you just come to this place of prayer. I'll give us some instruction in just a minute and open it up for those of us to come and gather around them and be friends of faith. I'm going to talk to us how we're going to do that. Nobody's going to hang on you. I'm not going to kiss you on the neck. I'm not going to ask you to tell all of your deep, dark secrets. No, we just want to gather around you and pray and be friends of faith. If you're here tonight and you would like us to pray with you, if you need God to give you an infusion of faith, as we sing, you stand up and you come and you pray right now.